this week on the Backtable podcast. I would say do your best to get to know your customers and please pay attention to customer service. When you look at a startup, there are some vital signs that people will talk about, things like growth, sales efficiency, cash burn rate, and customer retention. So you want to ask yourself, how are you going to get customers? A lot of people think entrepreneurship is about building a product. That's part of it. But I'll tell you, it's much more than that. And my advice is to focus, as you probably noticed from my early startups, that solving people's problems in the most efficient and effective ways possible. That's what I would like to emphasize focusing on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you're going to hear stories from entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through health tech innovation. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Nashville and co-founder of an early stage device company in the imaging space. I am very excited to introduce our special guest this week, Dr. Woojin Kim. Woojin is a musculoskeletal radiologist and serial entrepreneur. He has a background in imaging informatics, which led to the creation of three companies, the most recent being acquired by Rad AI. Today, we're going to learn about his journey on becoming a successful entrepreneur. So with that, welcome Woojin and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, yeah. We're very happy to have you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of background, job, education? Yeah, sure. So a little bit about myself. Um, I was born in Korea and lived there until I was 11. Um, my father believed my brother and I would do pretty well in the U.S. So he took a pretty big risk and moved the entire family first to Malaysia, where I went to school for a bit. And then we flew over to Canada and took a Greyhound bus down to Los Angeles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we lived as undocumented immigrants for many years. So I can tell you our early years in the U.S. were pretty difficult. Oh, wow. In fact, were you nervous at oh, that yeah, time? Like what was, the, what was the environment? I'm sure it's you know, probably not the same as it is now. It is different. In fact, you know, like, for example, when I was in high school, I was told it'd be very difficult for me to get into college. But through, you know, God's grace, I got into Brown. And I remember when my high school counselor called up Brown to explain my situation, saying, hey, look, this kid is undocumented and his parents can't afford an Ivy League tuition. And Brown simply said, just have him show up and we'll take care of the rest. Are you kidding? No. And Golly. And they did it. You know, you must have been a pretty bright student, I think. To, <laughs> I don't think they do that for everybody. <laughs> I was very blessed. Uh, so, yeah. But I did take a year off after college because, you know, I didn't think I can get into med school without a green card. But through another small miracle, I got into the University of Pennsylvania and was selected <laughs> as one of the six students to get a full tuition scholarship for all four oh, years. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't think it's luck. I mean, I don't think I don't think there was there was there was luck involved in any of this. Sounds like you're a pretty hard worker and obviously very bright. Thank you. <laughs> And so then I did my internship at the Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia and did my radiology residency at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And then I did a musculoskeletal fellowship at Penn from Monday through Thursday, and then did another fellowship in imaging informatics at the University of Maryland and VA Baltimore on Fridays. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. How did you swing that? I don't know a lot of fellowship directors that would be okay with yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. It is not, I don't think that's possible 
today, but... Well, the volumes are a lot higher. I mean, I think fellows are like critical these days. Yeah. So when I was in residency, you know, trying to get a fellowship, right now you have to apply and all those things. But I still remember I had co-resident. Both of us wanted to stay at Penn. So I still remember we were at a hospital, you know, escalator. And, you know, we saw our, you know, fellowship director, section chief, and we asked him at the bottom of the escalator as we were going up together, both of us were telling him, hey, can we stay here for, you know, uh, MSK fellowship? And he says, yeah. And by the time we got to the top of the escalator, we were fellows. And okay, <laughs> so, yeah, it's not like that. No, anymore, huh? no, not at all. <laughs> and And what's more is, you know, we had one day of academic during fellowship. So. You know, I asked him, I said, hey, do you mind if I go to another institution to do a fellowship in informatics one day of the week? And he said, well, it's your academic day and you could do whatever you want with it. So he actually allowed me to go to another institution in Baltimore to do this. So that's how I was able to do it. Wow. That's incredible. I love that. You took that opportunity. I mean, in informatics, that was not a big thing. No. Uh, when was What year was this? That was 2006 to 2007. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even know what informatics was. Me neither. So that's uh, very forward thinking of you. What made you interested in informatics? To be honest, it wasn't, you know, I kind of got into it by accident. I will tell you a story when I was a resident. And so when I was a first year radiology resident rotating to MSK radiology, we had a job that was always reserved for the first years. And here's how it went. At that time, we had two DEXA scanners stationed in two different buildings. And, you know, as the listeners know, DEXA is a medical imaging test that measures bone density. And every day around 3 p.m., we had to take a trip to each of these scanners and collect the day's paper printouts and then return to our workstations. From there, we manually dictated the data from the paper printouts into DEXA report templates, you know, calling out numbers like minus 2.7, next field, osteoporosis, next field, and you get it. For those of us, you know, who are radiologists, uh, I'm sure you know what that means uh, with the next field. And so as a first year, I thought this was an incredibly dumb job because you know, here you are taking the digital data from the DEXA scanners, converting it to analog form, those paper printouts, and then converting that back to digital through speech recognition. And if the speech recognition took down a wrong number, we'll get an earful from our endocrinologist the next day. And to me, it felt like a colossal waste of time. And we would spend literally about two hours every day doing this. So when I asked the manufacturers for a solution, you know, they came up empty. So I took it upon myself to find a workaround, a hack, if you will. So I discovered that one of the scanners was using a basic mail merge technique uh, used in Microsoft Word using Visual Basic. How'd you figure this out? So I actually went to the scanner. I went to the scanner. I wanted to figure this out. So I went to the scanner and I looked at the software and I wanted to, you know, ask the, you know, technologist and I was like, how does this thing work, this software? What does it do? How does it come out with the paper printout? And then I looked at it and it was like, oh, it's literally a Microsoft Word template and it's just filling the blanks uh, using Visual Basic. So I said, okay, I didn't know anything about Visual Basic at that time. So I taught myself just enough Visual Basic, you know, using the... Did you know anything about coding or anything at that point? No, not really. Almost nothing. Very little. I mean, having said that, I, I will tell you, I don't have an official CS background. The only CS background that I have officially is a one semester of Pascal that I took when I was a freshman in college. But can you educate me on what that is? Pascal is a language. And so I never used it again uh, after that semester, right? So 
But I will. Does anybody use it? I Is don't that a... know. I don't think so, actually. <laughs> That's a great question. I don't think so. But my father gave me an Apple II when I was little. And I don't know if you guys, I mean, you're probably too young to know what that computer is. But, you know, I vividly... It's a desktop? Yeah, it's a, it's a, like a desktop. Yes, yes. It's one of the earliest computers by Apple. And it didn't even have color screens. And I vividly remember poring over books and teaching myself how to code basic, which is a computer language. And I think that sparked a lifelong interest that I carried with me to this day. So I would say, yes, I don't have an official CS background, but I've always been interested in computers ever since I was little. So I did have some programming background, but more as a sort of a hobby. So going back to the story, what I did was try to look for the thinnest book I can find at the bookstore to teach myself Visual Basic to bypass the printing process and directly transfer the digital reports into a share folder that I made. And this allowed the residents to copy, paste, and sign off on them individually. So as a result, what was previously a couple hours of work now took only a few minutes. So the residents loved it. Did anybody say HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA? None of those things had, you know, <laughs> back those days. They hadn't gotten no, up yet. No. Yep. Um, All right. And you know what? To, today, if you try to, you know, create a hack like that, the hospital IT will never let you do that, right? So this was before those times. Ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> yes. I, I didn't say that. I didn't say it either. And so this particular type of, you know, hacking that I did caught the attention of Bill Boone, a co-resident who was a year junior to me, but had undertaken an informatics fellowship during his residency. So mm -hmm. he told me, hey, buddy, if you like doing this kind of stuff, you should do an informatics mm -hmm. fellowship. And I was like, what is imaging informatics? Kind of like what you asked earlier. And so, you know, I did a, you know, interview. They said, if you come down, you know, one day a week, you know, what, love to have you. So that's what I did. I got the permission and that eventually led to my entrepreneurial journey. Wow. Okay. So you're in residency. You did this. What happened with this? Uh, was this basically just a solution that you came out with to help your residents? So you were just solving a problem yeah. with the DEXA scan reports, making things easier so you didn't have to keep repeating numbers all the time. You'd screw up numbers. What happened next? So that was kind of like your, almost like your practice company. That was like the first time you got into something innovative and you're like, hey, I really like this. So so how did you move it to the next level? Yeah, so for that particular product, you know, then what we did was we analyzed the turnaround times and it was, the graph looked just amazing. You know, you got really bad turnaround times and then right after I implemented that solution, pretty much turnaround, you know, dropped to nothing. And I didn't really think about commercializing. I just used it as, you know, one of those tools that the residents were using. Now, having said that, eventually the companies did come up with an automated solution. So, you know, the hospital purchased an official software, but that kind of got me thinking about creating a solution that would solve problems that would plague radiologists. And when I got into informatics, uh, when I was a fellow, I noticed that Google was significantly lacking when it came to providing information useful to radiologists. Google does a decent job providing radiology-related information now, but back in 2006, it was returning, you know, pretty dismal results when searching for radiology images. Searching for, say, mesothelioma would bring up primarily law firm sites. So I taught myself something called PHP, which is a language, and then MySQL, which is a database, and developed something called Yadalook, a search engine centered around radiology to address this gap during my fellowship year. Were you working with anybody at this point? Did you realize, okay, this could be something 
commercial? Did you look at market size? Did you look to see if there was a need for this? How'd you validate that? Because it's one thing to say, man, I would love to be able to look up images. Why, why can't I do that? It would really help residents training, you know, even attendings. But I'm just curious kind of how that process unfolded for it was just like, hey, this would be neat to have. Let's work on this. It was literally just that initially. It was just like, hey, you know what? I think it would be neat for me to create a search engine just for radiologists. Can I do it? And I tried it. I was like, oh, this actually works. It's pretty cool. And this project later devolved into my first company, which is the company name was iVirtuoso, but the product was Yadalog, along with Bill Boone and Dr. Khan Siddiqui and Nabil Softar, who were my mentors during the uh, Imaging Informatics Fellowship. So that's how the first company came about. What was Bill Boone's role? Bill Boone, uh, so you'll find out, you know, throughout this podcast that Bill Boone and I co-founded three companies together. And he's always the CEO. You've got the magic. Yes. You've got the secret sauce. Some people find that partner that's just like, we hit it out of the park each time we go. Um, and that's that's incredible. You found it. Yeah. And of all the three companies that we had, Bill was always the CEO. And it's great because I have absolutely no desire to be CEO. So we complement each other quite well. <laughs> that's great. How important do you think it is to find a partner? co-founder, whatever you want to call it, number one. And the number two is how important is it to find somebody that kind of complements your your skill set? I think it's extremely important. You know, I know that some people advocate even, you know, talk about solopreneurship, but it may work for some people. But for me, from my personal experience, there's so many things I just don't know. I just don't have the expertise in. And, you know, when you start up a company, there's so many things you do need to know and you can't be everything to everyone. And this is why I think having a good co-founder or co-founders is extremely important. And luckily, you know, throughout all three companies, I've had excellent co-founders. And I will tell you that co-founder, that infighting and all those things that happen could literally kill a startup. So finding good co-founders is extremely important, I would have to say. Probably up there in like the top two or three, along with the idea and all of that is the co-founder. Because if you have bad energy with a co-founder, it's never going to work ever, 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 ever. So no, I totally, I totally, totally agree. So that was the Yadalog days. So I did that when I was a fellow. And then right after fellowship, you know, actually during my residency and fellowship, when I give this entrepreneurial talk, I usually start off by saying to the residents and trainees that, hey, you know, when I was where you are, we only had one or two choices. One was either you stay in academics or you go into private practice and that's it. You know, when I usually give that talk, even though I start off with just two pathways, I ended up by sharing that there are many, many different pathways. And, you know, I'm prime example of that. But when I was a resident, I was just like everyone else. I was faced with two choices and I told myself I would never become an academic radiologist. So Ah, why is that? I, I, I don't know. Ask that I question. Just, just figure like, you know what? I just, I think I'm just going to go into private but practice. But you like teaching. I did. You I like do teaching, like teaching, right? I do like teaching. And for, for whatever reason, I just thought, hey, you know what? I just want to go into private practice. And I'll tell you, never say never. But right after fellowship, so I found a job in teleradiology. So I worked for VRAD for two years. And I worked as a teleradiologist for two years straight. And I learned a lot being a teleradiologist, first of all, you learn to become super fast and very efficient. And you learn quite a bit about radiology workflow because they're really hyper-focused on allowing the radiologist to focus on exactly efficiency and productivity and 
they took care of everything else that I didn't need to worry about. So for example, like back then, they would ask us to have two internet ISP services. Why? Because if one of them goes down, they wanted me to switch over to the other ones to make sure that I'm always up and running. And they send me two of everything. So for example, like two keyboards, two mice, and even the hard drives where the, the programs were you know, residing in, they were switchable from the front end. So I can literally, if the computer goes down, I would just literally take that out and put it, the new one in. And so it was super efficient. And if something wasn't working, I would just send a message to the IT on the chat. And I would say, hey, something's not working. And you know, they would tell me, hey, Dr. Kim, can you just go and grab a cup of coffee while I look into this? And they remote in and they fix the issue. And it was just amazingly efficient. And this was back in 2007. And so I learned a lot by working for a teleradiology company back then. But never say never. After two years, I decided, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go back to academics. So I became a full-time faculty at the University of Pennsylvania in 2009. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then, and then where does that take us? So that takes us to my second company. Well, what happened with Yadalook? So Did I you was say that? You, so, so what happened was I was running at Yadalook, but eventually my second company, Montage Healthcare Solution, because Bill and I were both running two companies at the same time, ended up acquiring iVirtual Soul, which was parent company for so one of your companies ended up acquiring the, the other company. Yes. Okay. So that's how uh, the first company exited. Now that's interesting. Yeah. Now I think the Russian nesting dolls are starting, <laughs> I think, here. So that's, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I think I can still count that as an exit. So um, yeah, so the first company exited that way. But the birth of Montage was sitting in an office. I was racking my brain over an interesting MRI case that I had dictated about three weeks prior. However, I couldn't remember the patient's name, medical record number, or accession number, and who does, right? I could remember what I said in my report, but trying to find that report was extremely challenging. And this was back in 2009. And as a radiologist, I found it absurd that we lacked the means to search our internal radiology information systems with the same ease and efficiency as a Google search engine on the internet. And given the significance of healthcare, this seemed like a missed opportunity. So since I previously developed their search engine through Yalala. I decided to, you know, take matters into my own hands again. And I create a rudimentary search engine for the radiology information system at the hospital, which we named Presto, a name that Bill came up with, acronym for Pathology Radiology Enterprise Search Tool. And we showcased this search engine in several academic presentations. And someone would invariably approach us after each session asking if they can implement Presto at their institution. And Bill, the guy who inspired me to undertake the informatics fellowship, well, he's the one who recognized the commercial potential of Presto. And this recognition laid the groundwork for what later evolved into Montage, which was a radiology search and data mining tool that later evolved to offer operational and clinical analytics as well. And I started that company with Bill, Drs. Kurt Langloss and Raj Agarwal, all radiologists, which is also interesting from a co-founder perspective. But as you can probably tell, I owe Bill for many of my life decisions. Well, it sounds like you guys just work really well together. Yes, we do. So I want to jump back to something that you mentioned, and this is just me kind of getting into, yeah, like the uh, the interesting parts of, of a startup. This is now twice that I've noticed you have leveraged basically another value proposition like Google and the way Google searches. You have compared that to what's going on in your specialty, in your world and tried to find a solution that would make things as easy as X, Y, and Z, like Google. 
So the first one, you were like, why can't we Google medical images, right? And that became Yada Look. And then you said, why can't I search my reports? So I just want to bring that up is like, I, I find a lot of companies are started by finding solutions or value propositions in other areas or industries, and then applying those same things to your world, your expertise. So it's like saying we are the Uber of X, Y, and Z, but I'm noticing you've done that a couple times now, which is awesome. Yeah, so I can actually credit that to partially to uh, Dr. Paul Chang, actually from University of Chicago. I remember when I was in training and still quite young, I remember listening to give talks where he said, radiology is about 10, 15 years behind every other industry. <laughs> All you got to do is look at other industries. <laughs> exactly. So he calls that, you know, now he calls that intellectual arbitrage. And it's very interesting. And I just didn't, now that you say it, looking back, you're absolutely right. I guess I was practicing what I was listening to. That's awesome. And that's exactly what I did, which is, I, and I still advise that to other folks as well. I don't use those terms, but he's actually absolutely right where, you know, you just look around, you know, and healthcare, it's not just radiology, right? So just look at some other fields. And this is why I also advocate those of us in entrepreneurship. Yes, clinical domain expertise, absolutely important. And that's vital. But at the same time, it helps you to read other stuff other things, network with folks that are not in your area, not in healthcare, and figure out, you know, learn what they're doing. And you will learn that, oh my God, these guys are doing this thing so much better than the way we're doing it. And if I can just bring some of that into healthcare, I look like a genius. And that's what, he, you know, Dr. Paul Cheng would say, you could look like a genius by just looking at other fields and bring that, some of that technology into radiology, and you will look brilliant. So that is... It's totally true. And I think there's multiple levels to that. There's what you're saying. And then I always bring up using even solutions that other specialties have, you can bring to your specialty. So the one I've always found so fascinating is Kyphon, right? I mean, you know, this world being MSK. So, I mean, it's like a vascular balloon that they would use to expand bone, right? For vertebral compression fractures. And taking that technology and applying it to that is something that I would never, never have thought of. But it turns out it was one of the biggest, I think it was the biggest med tech acquisition ever was taking that. So there's so many solutions out there that are vertically housed within a certain specialty that if you can only kind of pull a little bit of that knowledge or those principles over, you could really improve your own. Yeah. And this is why I like advising other startups other companies that are not necessarily just in radiology, just because I can learn so much by just meeting people, talking to people, advising other companies. And so you build your own fund of knowledge that will help you solve problems in the future while also kind of giving back. Yes. So I learned a lot by running Montage and hopefully I can circle back at the you know end of the session about some of the lessons I've learned. But one thing I definitely want to highlight from Montage experience is the importance of the team. And for me, having the team that we had was one of the biggest factors in our success, including the early members of the company like John Paulette, Brandon Smith, and Ala Gorbeski. Bill and I started three companies together so far, like I mentioned. And I said, you know, Bill was always the CEO because we complement each other so well. And I think this particular factoid will sum up this part nicely. So during the six years that we grew Montage, not a single full-time employee who joined our company 
left. Holy cow. Which is extremely rare. How many people are we talking about? We're only talking about a little over a dozen. So it's not a huge company, but yes. And that's the credit that I like to give Bill. You know, I think that's why he's always the CEO because he puts so much emphasis on the culture of the company. And I think that little factoid that I share pretty much sums it up. What is it? I mean, if you had to put your finger on it, what does he do? He really cares about the people. And so when it comes to, hey, is this going to generate more revenue? And is this going to give us a bigger exit? And all those things, at the end of the day, his thoughts are always with, how do I make sure my people are taken care of? So he does a really good job of that. Does that include equity and taking care of people in terms of salary or just making sure they are flexible with work or? Like even little things like we would give out, you know, he would make sure that, you know, not using company funds, but ask the co-founders, hey, let's collect some funds and let's give, you know, Christmas bonuses, you know, for example. So that didn't come from the company funds or investment funds. It just came from our own pocket. And yeah. And so then uh, Montage was acquired about six and a half years after the founding of the company back in 2016 by Nuance Communications. Well, there you go. Heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of us in radiology, you know, uh, Nuance very extremely well. And so I was the chief medical information officer at Nuance from 2016 to 2019. How was that working for the, the big company at that point, going from a startup to a larger company? Yeah. You know, a lot of people who are in the startup world always get little anxious about getting acquired by a publicly traded company because of the size of the corporations and, and differences in cultures and everything. But I will tell you, I actually had a really nice time. And it was partly because, you know, they really trusted me to really help to grow the product. And so they gave me a lot of freedom and leeway without really bogging me down. So to their credit, they really worked to grow the product, which I appreciate even to this day as a small part of me still feels like it's my baby. And at the same time, Nuance actually wanted and encouraged me to practice one day a week as a radiologist. But I have a confession. I experienced burnout as an academic radiologist. So it's not just one of those hot topics in radiology for me. I know what burnout feels like. But after the acquisition, I left Penn and moved to Los Angeles. And I've been living in LA since. And I'll tell you, it took me almost three years before I started to work again as a radiologist at the Palo Alto VA. Even though, yeah, Nuance actually wanted me to work one day a week. So you were burned out. Was it volumes? Yeah. What, what, it, what was it? It was just the grind? Yeah, it's the grind. It's the volume. It's the pace at which, you know, we were expected to work. Especially when you're in an academic center, you, you feel like you're there because you want to promote the academic mission. But you also can't ignore the clinical responsibilities. And I get that. But when that overtakes everything else, then you start to kind of question, like, why am I here uh, doing this? So, well, it's not a good fit for the for the life you were looking for. That's right. And so, when I was in Nuance, they really supported me in terms of what I did, and I got to see a lot. I got to learn a ton because you know Nuance is an international company, which meant that I got to travel internationally quite a bit. And so, I can tell you one statistics in 2019, which was the last year I was at Nuance. I went to 26 countries in one year. I mean, a lot of them, you know, some of them were obviously for, you know, personal travel reasons, but I got to learn a lot about not only how healthcare is run within different parts of this country, but also in different parts of the world. So it was a great experience for me. Incredible. I love it. So that brings you up to what timeline? You're at 2019, 2020, somewhere around there? 
Yeah, so 2019, in 2020, along with Bill, again, and John Paulette was one of the earliest Montage employee who was our CTO, and Greg Couch and John Aziaski, five of us uh, started a company called Equium in 2020. Okay, and what was Equium's, uh, what, what was it about value proposition and how did it come about? Sure, so we ended up creating an application that uses AI for demand forecasting and capacity planning, specifically for radiology. So imagine being able to predict that, hey, your section's gonna cease 287 exams next Thursday and that your radiologist scheduled to work that day will be close to their maximum capacity. And if you knew that, you can plan by scheduling an extra radiologist, like say, you know, Dr. Jones for a few hours to handle the load. And if you don't need three radiologists, maybe you can have one of the radiologists leave a little early. And so, you know, three of us are you know, not sitting in the reading room. Oh, that problem is massive. I mean, even where I am now, it's the, that problem comes up all the time. And I asked, I was like, how can we not predict the volume? Yeah. It feels like things are scheduled. And then the, the answer I got back was, well, many of these days that we get exploded on are like specialty clinics or they, it's a, it's a, you know, a one day, uh, a, a, a couple weeks, they'll have this clinic and it's just like they scheduled everybody on that one day. So did it handle those types of issues where you've got a sprawling medical center with somebody who does like pulmonary hypertension on one day a month and it just is, you know, there's 30 cases that come in that day. Yeah, no, we, we not only were able to predict that out about eight weeks in advance what the incoming workload is going to be, but we also, one of the things we wanted to do was, you know, really help with the, this work-life balance that everyone's talking about, right? So for example, like if you knew that, you know, your girls are about to play soccer in the afternoon on Friday and you kind of want to leave two hours early, well, it would be great if you were able to do that, right? So we wanted to provide that level of flexibility, but at the same time, we knew that a lot of things in healthcare happens the day of. So certain things you just can't predict out, you know, a couple of weeks in advance. So we had a secondary AI model that would actually look for the sudden surges of cases. Were you just looking at days? Were you looking, did you like have to retrospectively review yes. each medical center's like yes. daily volume and you would then draw graphs and patterns and say, okay, here's how you need to model out. Because I guess at that point, you don't really have to know what's coming in the future if you have all the past data that you can kind of predict what's going to happen coming up. Yeah. So we would actually look at the past data to predict that to several weeks into the future. But we also supplemented that with both the real-time data, because sometimes maybe an ED gets a certain surge of patients at 10 o'clock and you know that's going to eventually funnel down to you four hours later. So you know, we were able to give this sort of a surge protection. Okay. Got yes. it. Got it. Like, like so, in the day type of. Yeah. So we give you intraday as well, several weeks in advance, sort of combine those so that we can deal with the surges as well. But we also incorporate things like weather, because you know, you know, when I was in the East Coast, I can tell you if there's a big <laughs> snowstorm tomorrow, yeah. I know that I'm going to be just sitting in the reading room, not doing much. Right. And so we took not only the internal, but external data to do these predictions. So the company got a lot of traction. We would always say like down here in the South, when it's super warm, if it's like a beautiful day during the summer, you're host. Like the ER is going to be full traumas, all of it. Wow, I did not know you took that in the, into account. Yeah, so we did that. And then we also uh, used it for resource management to you know give some predictive and prescriptive analytics to optimize your MR scanners, for example. So, because you know everybody gets, you know say 45 minutes slot, but why? Some patients, for some studies, it might take less or sometimes more. So 
why can't we have a more dynamic, more intelligent, you know, scheduling? So we did all that. We wanted to bring AI into smarter and more efficient operations. So that was Equium. And, you know, the start of the company was perfect because it was right before pandemic. I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it allowed us to really develop the product during the COVID days. And that probably threw off a lot of data. I imagine did, at that point, it you're did. like, this is pointless, you know, because we know it's not reality. But it also is a good way to kind of make your system more robust. Exactly. So that's exactly what happened because March of 2020, you know, everybody knows what happened, right? So when we ran on a test site, the forecasts were completely off, obviously, right? But we were able to optimize the model so that by April, it was actually able to get closer to what the volume prediction should be. And so it gave us definitely a lot of lessons from that perspective. Well, you got to see a lot of variability, I assume. Yeah, yeah. And that that probably helps. And be able to handle that. So we ran that company for about two and a half years. We were just about to officially, you know, we just commercialized it in the middle of 2022. And then we were actually acquired by Red AI at the end of last year. So that was our third exit. Wow. So you were acquired pre-commercialization. Pretty much, right? Or pretty close to it. Yeah, exactly. And so- That's incredible. That's how I became part of, you know, Red AI. Three for three. I love it. So what were some of the learnings you took from Equium? So the Equium was, I would say, there's obviously so many lessons. But one thing that I can tell you as a tip that really helped us is when we were acquired by Nuance, we went through a really extensive due diligence process. And for that, you need to create a data room and you got to come up with all these folders and with all these documents, right? And we had hired a part-time CFO Jay Shaw in the middle of our company history. And he really came in and said, hey guys, you can't have your paperwork like this. And he totally cleaned everything up for us. And it was so great because by the time we went through due diligence, the paperwork review and those kinds of things, that aspect just went extremely smooth because of it. So that's like corporate housekeeping, so to speak. Yeah. So that's extremely important. And that helped us because what happened when we started our third company was we took that same due diligence folder structures and all the document requirements, and then we use that as a template for our third startup. And so this is one tip I would say is when you are trying to start a company, you definitely want to work with somebody who has gone through it. Ideally, someone who has actually had exit experience so that they can really help you think about things that you wouldn't think about un- until maybe too late. Because a lot of times, you know, during due diligence process, that is going to be asking all these questions and you'll be like, what is that? So that it was, you know, one thing that helped us quite a bit. And and then, yeah, we were acquired by end of last year by Red AI. And so here I am. And I can just tell you a little bit about the company. Please. Yeah. Yes. So first, I know I'm biased here, but I can honestly say, having been part of this company for about a year now, that Red AI is the hottest startup in Radiology today. I believe it. You're focusing on something that I think not a lot of people have paid attention to in the world of AI, you know, and I'd love to hear you describe a little bit non-interpretive versus interpretive AI and what that means and why this corner of radiology has not gotten the attention that it deserves. Yeah. So then let me first start off by describing that difference between interpretive and non-interpretive AI, and then I'll circle back to why our products are different. So a lot of the hype around AI and radiology can be attributed to the ImageNet large-scale visual recognition challenge 
And when something called AlexNet used a convolutional neural network running on GPUs to blow away the competition back in 2012. And because the focus of deep learning was so much on computer vision, it was natural for folks and many startups to go from thinking, hey, if I can tell the difference between a dog and a cat, why can't I use it for medical imaging? Hence, much of the attention of AI and radiology has been on what we call interpretive AI, such as, you know, making a finding on a chest x-ray or a head CT. However, if you look at the imaging value chain, image interpretation is only a small part of it. And what do I mean by imaging value chain? Well, when you look at the radiology workflow, it involves ordering, scheduling, protocoling, and obtaining medical imaging exams as well as, you know, staffing and workflow optimization and billing, communicating and following up on results. And all these other steps are where non-interpretive AI can make an impact. And that's been the area that I've been focusing on in my startups. And that's also the area that Red AI as a company has been focusing on. And so circling back to Red AI as a company, before we joined, Red AI had three products. The first product, Omni Impressions, is what the company is best known for. When you look at a radiology report, there are various sections. I'm sure you've seen it. And I know the overall format varies, but there are two sections that are almost always present. The finding section, where the radiologist describes what he or she observes in an image, and the impression section, which summarizes the observations and also includes the diagnosis and recommendations. And Omni Impressions use generative AI technology, or Gen AI for short, to generate the impression section for the radiologist automatically. And not only does this, you know, save radiologists time, but the other benefit I hear most often is that it reduces the cognitive load where the radiologists tell me that they feel less tired at the end of the day. Incredible. Yeah. And this kind of makes sense because, you know, it takes work to think about yeah. those things, especially if you're dealing with multiple impression findings. That's right. It's number one, did you get them all, right? Did you remember that pancreatic cyst or did you remember that adrenal nodule, which I always like have to, you know, you kind of have to go back and be like, what did I say again? <laughs> you know, And then there's formulating it or summarizing it and putting it in a way that is helpful and can lead to appropriate management decisions. Exactly. So the clinicians absolutely, you know, the referring providers absolutely don't like, hey, impressions as described above, they don't like that, right? So you need to put in the work. And this is why it makes sense why solutions like this, you know, helps with the cognitive burden. And I know a lot of people are writing about this in, you know, generative AI research in radiology nowadays. But here's the thing. Red AI as a company has commercialized Gen AI solutions in radiology long before ChatGPT came on the scene. So you could say radiologists are actually already using Gen AI in clinical practice. And the second and third products are, we have a AI-driven follow-up management application called Continuity and an intelligent workload solution for radiologists called Nexus. So the original goal of the acquisition of Equium was to bake in the demand forecasting and capacity planning that I had mentioned earlier into the Nexus product to make the workless product smarter. And I can tell you that is still the goal, but at the beginning of this year, we started working on our fourth product, Omni Reporting. And incredibly, even though we recently launched this product, it won the best new radiology software award from entmini.com this year. Incredible. How's it work? So as you know, radiology reports, radiologists have been using speech recognition to generate their radiology reports for decades. However, this area hasn't seen much innovation in recent years, and we wanted to change that. So let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Now, some of the listeners will know what an alternator is. Do you know what that is? 
an alternator in a car. No, uh, see, exactly. <laughs> so for those of you who are too young, <laughs> like Brian, uh, it was a device where we hung x-rays and it resembled the machine on which the clothes hang at your local dry cleaner. Okay. So by using a foot pedal, the machine will cycle through the panel after panel until it arrived at your films where there was this intense backlight that shone through the, you know, the films. Got it. I've seen so that. It's the same you've thing. You've seen it. I'm sure I've you've seen, seen the picture I've of it. I've seen it back in the museum days, I guess, is yes, what you're trying Exactly. To it's pretty hard to even Google for this, for a picture of this. So you might be asking, okay, why am I talking about an alternator? So I actually use this, not to date myself. But back then, you were able to keep your eyes on the films the entire time. Why? Because you only had the films in front of you and a dictaphone in your hand. And the transcriptionist would not only format your report for you, but also fix your mistakes without you even knowing about them. Now today, radiologists have to go back and forth, back and forth between looking at the image and the reporting screen, especially because many of us have to generate structure reports. So what I'll tell you is imagine being able to generate a full radiology report by saying very little while keeping your eyes on the images. And that's the vision of OmniReport. I love it. Yeah. So basically you can dictate in words, like single single words or single phrases. Words or if it's just very, you're just looking at the findings. So you don't have to dictate all the negative things, the negative findings. Just look at the positive findings and just dictate those. And the application will take those findings and put them into the right spots within the radiology report. You don't have to like look at the field. I think that's the beautiful part that I don't know. Exactly. You don't have to be like, oh, I'm not in the right field. Oh, it didn't actually click over something like yeah. that. Yeah. And you don't have to use special words like hyponyms or anything like that. Just use whatever words and it will figure out where to put those into the reports. And then we're going to show at RSNA something I can't talk about it right now, but in two weeks, I'll be able to where you are able to generate an entire report as little as two words. Whoa, very cool. Yeah. It sounds like you're pushing the, the bounds of non-interpretive AI. And it's something that not a lot of folks have gone in this area. And it's a bit of low hanging fruit for improving efficiency and really improving the lives of physicians, radiologists who are reading every single day and dealing with burnout and RVUs and stress. Yep. That's awesome. So what have you learned from Equium? Another takeaway. So why don't I just share a bunch of advice Let's do that it. I would give to entrepreneurs? Let's do uh, it. I think since, you know, we talked about a bunch of different companies, different experiences. Let me first preface by saying starting a company is really hard. So definitely prepare for that. I think Elon Musk once said that starting a company is like staring into the abyss and eating glass. Although I think it, said it was his friend who told him that. But at the same time, it can be incredibly rewarding, as you heard through my journey. And if you really want to do this, then I'd say, you know, dive in and embrace the risk. Maybe because due to the nature of medicine, I think many of us who are physicians are extremely risk averse, naturally. However, stepping outside our comfort zone can open up some really exciting avenues. And I like to also preface this list of advices by saying you don't necessarily have to be even an entrepreneur in the classic sense. Instead, you know, you could be an intrapreneur and innovate within your existing environment. But in the end, it's about pursuing great ideas, creating something bigger than yourself, and hopefully having a blast. Having said all that, here's some advice I can share. First, networking is key. From the start, I was lucky to have brilliant mentors and a supportive circle. My advice is to prioritize building solid connections. Courses, conferences, and online videos are helpful, but nothing beats the wisdom and insight you gain from the people right around you. 
I'm actually naturally an introvert. I mean, I sound like it, but sometimes to an extreme degree, actually. So it actually takes a considerable conscious effort to be social for me. Now, that doesn't mean you know, I'm antisocial or don't like to interact with others. I do, and interacting with others make me more creative. But I share this because I know being social and networking, they don't come easy for many of us listening, but it is important. And that's why I do it. Force yourself it. almost to have to do it. Exactly. Yeah, because exactly. you know it pays outside returns. So, I mean, I think that's a great point. Yeah. And related, I know people will tell you having the right team is crucial for startup success. And like I shared earlier, it's absolutely true. Co-founder drama is a startup killer. So keep that in mind. It totally is. A hundred thousand percent it is. So, you know, how do you maximize your chance of having a great team? You know, that's the other question. Like, how do I find the right folks, right? And this is why I mentioned networking, because networking helps a great deal here. And speaking of a great team, I will also tell you, you're in a lot of trouble if you are the smartest person in the room. Tell me about it. Yeah. So doesn't happen to me a lot. So don't worry. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> me neither. So I said, you know, definitely work with someone, you know, who's gone through this. And again, related to this advice, I have to say, remember to be kind. And I'll tell you that because our world is much smaller than you think, especially in healthcare IT. That sales rep that you are mean to may become like a CEO of a company you may need to negotiate or partner with later on. So good relationships go a long way. And as you can tell, I put a huge emphasis on people for startup success. And staying on the topic of people, understanding your customers is absolutely crucial. So I would say, do your best to get to know your customers and please pay attention to customer service. When you look at a startup, there are some vital signs that people talk about things like growth, sales efficiency, cash burn rate, and customer retention. So you wanna ask yourself, how are you going to get customers? A lot of people think entrepreneurship is about building a product. That's part of it, but I'll tell you, it's much more than that. And my advice is to focus as you probably noticed from my early startups, that solving people's problems in the most efficient and effective ways possible. That's what I would like to emphasize focusing on. And for the love of AI, please don't just make a GPT wrapper today. <laughs> there is no moat. And so always start with the why. I'm gonna quote Dr. Paul Chang again. So I can't take credit for this, but I still remember this particular lecture from him who once said that C-suites care about three things, ROI, total cost of ownership, and regulatory requirements. So ask if your product addresses at least one of these things if you want to sell it. Say it, it was ROI, TCO, total cost of ownership, and regulatory requirements. What does that explain that one, total cost, for them to acquire it or? Yeah, to what total cost of ownership, meaning like what's the cost of me just running this and how does that help with the cost reductions? And the last one was? Regulatory requirements, meaning that it's something, you know, that's you're required to do. Right? Got it. So those are the main things that folks care about who are going to be in the leadership positions to potentially acquire you. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, purchasing your product. Got it. So you will go into a sales meeting and you talk about all the benefits, efficiency gains and all those things. That's great. But you need to be able to answer the ROI question a lot of times. And speaking of money, remember things usually take much longer than you expect, okay? Especially if you're starting a company in healthcare. And that means you'll need more financial resources than you initially planned. And regarding fundraising, unless you're working on a breakthrough, you know, technology or curing a, you know, fatal disease, you want to raise money ideally after you have some traction because you want to come from a position of strength and not weakness or desperation. 
that's great advice. I think I'm living it right now. We're getting closer. Like we need to raise money now. You almost always need to be raising money, especially if you're in a capital yeah. heavy like medical device where where we are. I will tell you. So the first company was self-funded, and then the second company were just was just friends and family. We didn't have you know institutional funding, and the third company were just self-funded as well. So for me, despite three companies and three exits. One experience I never had until now is, you know, institutional funding experience, which I am getting right now. So that's another thing that I'm learning. I'm learning a lot, but I think if you want to scale, it is a route that you definitely have to consider. The other advice I like to emphasize is to read. I spend, honestly, not to pat myself on the back, I spend about four hours a day reading up on Gen AI. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I told one of my friends recently. That's some Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger level reading, it sounds like. Yeah, I told one of my friends that I don't think I read this much since med school. And if I don't, I would have a reading list of 60 articles the next day. So there are many things you need to learn. And that's what I need to do to stay up to date with the generative AI technology. Fortunately, there are you know many great resources out there. So you don't necessarily have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on an MBA. And so I would definitely recommend that you take advantage of those. And finally, I would say, please take care of your well-being. Burnout doesn't do anyone any good. And startup is a marathon. And I'm sure I can think of more, but I'll stop there. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, Diana Velasquez-Pimentel, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lilly Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.